Welcome to the Self-Renewal Podcast. This is your host, Sam Sager. I've got a really fun episode today with Kristen Hoff. Kristen is a landscape architect with education in environmental planning and permaculture design. She's the founder of Roots First, where she works with clients to create living landscapes, and she cares for an abundant food forest in the Piedmont region of North Carolina. Today we talk about growing food anywhere, slowing down, evolving ecosystems, regenerative design, non-doing with nature, our sensory capacities, and so much more. So let's jump in. Kristen, welcome. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me here. Um, I really appreciate you um, asking me to be on. Yeah, I can't wait for this conversation. I've uh, been really looking forward to connecting with you and have so much I want to chat with you about. I thought it would be fun to kick it off. You have a description of your life's work as cultivating life-giving landscapes, which I just love so much. And so I'd love to hear you tell us about that. Sure. Um, well, this actually is a, is a more recent phrase I've been using, and I just kind of hit upon it as I've been really thinking about what um, what work or how my work aligns with my values, really. So, you know, like many people, I think during the last few years, starting with, you know, March of 2020, <laughs> there's just been a lot of reflecting on what is working for me and what has felt um, important to me fundamentally, and then what I can kind of put aside and what hasn't really served me. And so I've I've been doing that in all spheres of my life, but I think that uh, certainly in my work life, uh, you know, I've been giving a lot of thought to what, like, even like how I talk about my work. And so I have been working with a really great uh, person the last year to kind of really help me work on aligning how I talk about my work with what I value because I was having a problem for a really long time where I was, you know, getting plenty of work, but it was like, I was feeling like I was having to convince people to care as much about what I cared mm. about. And so that starts to feel really frustrating. And so what I have been working on for the last year is thinking about how I talk about my work more. And yeah. what's amazing is that the more that I kind of pinpoint what it is that is important to me, what is important, like what I value. And the more that I communicate about it, all of a sudden it's like, it's almost like magnetic. It's like, I'm attracting people who like people it's resonating. And so yes. it's like, I'm attracting people who like what I have to say. And then all of a sudden it is in alignment. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it's kind of amazing how that works. So in terms of life giving landscapes specifically, I mean, I think, in my field, there can be a lot of um, getting kind of really lost in talking about like ecological concepts or, you know, a lot of kind of more academic side of thinking about ecology um, and thinking about um, or kind of the academic side of design and kind of using language and like talking about it in terms that don't kind of get down to it of like what's really most important. And so yeah. I guess when I really started to reflect, it was like, I really care a lot about like just places 
being alive, <laughs> obviously, like that we're supporting their ecological systems and supporting like viability of life, but then also um, kind of like having a vibrancy to them. Like I like things that are more chaotic. I like things that are filled with life. Um, that's how I like to design landscapes. And so there's that. A couple other ways I think about the life-giving aspect of it is um, kind of the idea of people um, kind of engaging on their own terms. So like kind of what makes an individual that I'm working with, a client or whatever, feel most alive for themselves also. So not just a description of the landscape, but like how can we put together a process that kind of connects that person that I'm working with, like all the more with the land. And there's like different aspects of, of a landscape that make different people feel alive in different ways. And so I'm really interested in that. Like what's the entry point for any given person yeah. um, that makes them also feel more alive. And so I feel like it's kind of this reciprocal process of like the more that you support life in, on the land, you know, like in a landscape, in whatever kind of space you're looking at, the more that you support life, the more alive I feel the more alive the person who is connected with that land feels. And so it's kind of both the person and the land itself. Yeah. I, I love that. I, it, it's bringing to mind Christopher Alexander, who I'm a huge fan of. I don't know if you've read his, yeah, absolutely. his work, but yeah, he has the pattern garden growing wild, but also I think his book is all about how do you bring life to spaces, to environments. And um, it, it's cool to hear you describe that. Yeah. Well, Christopher, Christopher Alexander was a really huge influence of mine early because I studied permaculture before I studied landscape architecture and urban planning. Mm -hmm. And, um, at, at my first permaculture training, I think I picked up that book. They had some different books that you could like take, you know, buy and take home. And like, I picked up pattern language and, um, there's something about that use that idea of patterns that just like forever fascinates me. In fact, mm -hmm. we're working on my team's working on um, putting out, we're going to be putting out several books, like pattern books essentially for kind of patterns right now for like different purposes um, oh, cool. in terms of like how to bring a land to life. But um, what I love about it is that it's like not some sort of static, just like aesthetic thing to look at, <laughs> but he like really talks about like how people connect with a place. So I really love that. Totally. Yeah. I, I think I, I get a sense of how he's honoring the place, but also the people that are going to be in it and all of that. And I think what you're describing with your work is how you're not just helping your clients create a landscape, but you're helping them become the people who can take care of it. Um, yeah, so I'd love to absolutely. hear- Love I'd love to hear a little bit, that. just like, yeah, what does, what does your work with your clients look like? Like what are typical projects, typical clients? Yeah. Um, so it depends. It totally depends on the project because I do work at a lot of different scales, but um, you know, like the simplest one to talk about is just working with somebody at, for their home landscape. And I am trained to be able to do kind of the engineering for their land and kind of just do like what looks like a blueprint, you know, that you could pass off to somebody to, um, to build. And a lot of landscape architects can make a lot of money doing that. 
but it almost requires that the person for, for anybody to want to spend that kind of money for somebody to just do a plan that like somebody else builds for them. And then like somebody else takes care of over time requires that they, there's a certain level of removal from that landscape because you know, like you, you have, you have to have the money to pay for it. And you also are relying on other people to take care of it. And it just like never exactly sat well with me. I just really believe in, I feel like that's leaving like so much of the joy of a landscape on the table. Like it's not just if there are some like pretty flowers out there, although flowers are great, but um, I feel like it really is that whole process of like engaging with and like connecting with your land that like, that's really what it's all about for me. So I guess, you know, especially since I've been talking about the idea of bringing land to life or or life-giving landscapes, I think that um, I like a typical process might be that somebody um, wants to, well, there's one I just talked about on Instagram yesterday. Like somebody wants to, they, they see that when their house was built, that a lot of the land was deforested. And they imagine, these clients imagine that that land, um, you know, had woods on it not too long ago and birds that lived there. And it really is hard for them to kind of make sense of the fact that now those things are, they're kind of there still because there's still some surrounding fragments of forest, but they feel really called to kind of bring a lot of it back. So um, I'm working with them on um, like a three to five year plan for how they're going to reforest this. And it's really just a suburban landscape. And so like we look at a suburban landscape and we're like, that's lost. Like, that's it, you know, and just kind of like toss it aside and definitely still in in, same in downtowns and more urbanized, you know, places that were urbanized longer ago. But in all of those places, there's absolutely nothing stopping anyone from studying what was there studying what kind of land it is. Um, This happens to be an area of bottomlands, hardwoods, and they're still not that far from the creek. The, that zone next to the creek is still forested. So like we can look at what was there, what is there and kind of let it reintroduce itself kind of a little bit further upslope. And so in this case, you know, I'm helping them a little bit, but essentially the way I'm structuring it is that it's a do-it-yourself plan. Like it's something that they're going to implement for themselves over the next three to five years. Um, and so it's as much about process and like what is the process going to be like over time for them as it is about like what it's supposed to look like at any moment in time. Because any sort of dynamic, alive landscape is like constantly shifting and changing. And so while there's definitely like, these are the things you're going to put in now, or these are the things we're going to put in, you know, in three years where we have to allow that to shift and change based on, you know, what wildlife shows up there and what plants volunteer to be in that space. So that's a great example of just how to work, how I work with clients. Um, Some, and again, some clients want to be more or less involved, but I really love to create plans that people can work on you know, together over time. Another one that I could mention is a learning landscape here. There's a, it's an alternative school and um, they have, again, it's just like a little parcel of woods that's kind of behind the school building, but it's pretty much surrounded by suburban apartment complexes. Like, so like parking lots, if you can imagine, Mm. but we are, 
um, like actually next week at this time, I'm going to be in the classroom with the students talking to them about whether they like this image of forest play or this image of forest play and like really trying to, to like get them to give me as much information as they can about like what they'd like to do in their learning landscape. And then we're going to be building this learning landscape with them over time. So, you know, starting with some drawings that they can use for the school to fundraise for. And then as they start fundraising, then we're going to be implementing each element, leak play, play element like over time. And they're going to have trails that the students are actually going to build as part of their learning. So it's a very unique school and that the kids are going to have that kind of opportunity. But we're actually kind of integrating like curricula and like what the kids are learning into how we're thinking about how the landscape is going to be built over time. I love how you're describing the way in which you're taking people on a process. And I think when we look at landscapes so often, especially in the suburbs, it looks like it's this finished project, um, but really it's this, it's evolution. And yeah, I, I'd love to hear, I know this is your work that you do with clients and and professionally, but that you also live it. And, you know, from what you've shared, it sounds like you're on about a quarter acre of um, land in the suburbs. So I'd love if you could share for people like, what, what are you doing there? How much can you really grow on such a you know, small, small piece of land? Well, I think you can grow a lot on a small piece of land. And before I say about my, I'm looking out the window and it's looking really terrible right now. So before I talk about successes and failures here, um, I would just say like, I would just like to share kind of what's inspired me or who inspired me to think that I could create this because what I'll tell you about is what I'm still picturing for my own land that I think I'm not quite there yet. So one um, is a guy named Charlie Heddington who lives in Greensboro and he was a professor at UNC Greensboro. Um, And in, in, I think he, he uh, taught Eastern religion actually. And um, he lived in a, kind of it's suburban but it's like a um a neighborhood not too far from downtown like historic neighborhood in Greensboro small property i mean quarter acre or less definitely not very big and um he teaches permaculture um and has taught it for a long time and so before i even took my my full permaculture training i went to his house one afternoon for like a perma a 2 hour permaculture workshop and I did this as I think I was like 22 when I took his course and what I saw on his property absolutely captured my imagination. So if you can imagine a side a house with a sidewalk in front of it, the little strip in front of there was full of um, actually he had corn stalks growing, but then also a lot of pollinator plants. Um, the entire front yard was an apple orchard. I mean, I don't have all the specifics, right, but just, you know, imagine what this was like. Um, There was a little woodland path on the side that took you to the backyard where there were ponds um, that had frogs jumping around in them, um, pawpaw fruits, and lots of different kinds of berries were all integrated with these terraces that um, were full of vegetables. And, you know, it was probably the best time of year. My 22-year-old imagination was absolutely captured um, by what I saw there. And I think it just... Like, I I feel like in some ways I've like been chasing that um, magic 
for my mm-hmm. entire career and also for my entire time trying to grow my own landscape like that. Um, another one, another permaculture teacher um, in North Carolina who um, had something similar was Will Hooker, who uh, was a longtime NC State horticulture professor, who on um, also a very small piece of land right near NC State um, had a really magical perma- urban permaculture lot. And so just to say that so often when we think about self-sufficiency or we think about the idea of kind of growing your own food or having a food forest, we, we're talking about it in terms of these like rural area, rural homesteads where you kind of just have like so much land, you just like almost don't even know where to start. And, yeah. you know, don't get me wrong, in a lot of ways, I kind of want that. But there's just something like magical, really magical about being able to do it in a spot that you don't expect. Um, so anyway, that's what I, so I say all that to say that yeah. that's really where I'm going with my little property. So I have the verge strip planted in native grasses and um, native flowers. Um, so definitely get a lot of bird visits in that verge strip. So that's that strip between the sidewalk and the street. And then there's kind of like a bank, um, not very steep, but just this area in front where there are a couple of cherry trees, various blueberries, Juneberries. Um, and then kind of on the side, I have a couple Asian pears and more Juneberries. Um, and so, and then kind of all interspersed with that, there's strawberries on the ground. Um, there are, there's some sage that's doing really well. So kind of just really a whole hodgepodge of different plants. Now, what happened there was that actually after I planted the service berry and after some of the cherries got bigger and bigger, it got really super shady in this spot. And so I think mm-hmm. over the last year, that ecosystem has really radically changed and I noticed it was just like more and more weeds. And so I just actually went through and did a huge clearing right there because a lot of the more sun loving native perennials I had planted there have kind of moved on um, because they're not getting the sun that they needed with the fruit trees that are there. So a little bit of an unintended consequence of my, I mean, I could have guessed, but that's, that area is shifting a little bit. Um, Then I've got some bird garden um, kind of right next to the stairs that you walk into to get into the house and um, kind of right behind that, which is right outside. And I call it a zone one um, is where I grow annual vegetables. So I expanded that this year. I love to build with stone. And so I built a stone wall um, to house a raised, a very large raised bed. Um, And I've got a lot of Summer things growing in there still, green beans and whatnot, but I'm I'm should have already planted my fall greens. And then up from there, I've got four large planters that have that had tomatoes in them. It's just kind of at the end of the time. And that's what I'm looking out on that looks pretty terrible mm. right now. <laughs> yeah, we are in we're in North Carolina. North Carolina in the summer, this this time of year, the the gardens really it's really struggle. It's, it's a, really it's a, a battle a dying jungle is what it looks like. Um, and then, you know, then when you get to further back to the side of my house, it's, it's a unusual property in that we just have a whole lot of subspaces. I've got a whole kind of herb garden and flower garden area. So that really focused, that's out my back door. So really focused on herbs out my back door. Um, and then when you get to the back, uh, we have it, we, we live, I love to read the landscape and like really think about, or be in touch with 
the underlying ecology and kind of topography of the space. And this is a, it, it, it's a ravine when you go out my back door, like down to a Creek mm. that is um, partially buried actually. So you wouldn't necessarily even know that that's there if you, if you didn't know, <laughs> but um, since it's pretty steep, I have built terraces in there and I've got elderberry and um, you know, some, some berries that can handle a little bit more shade. Um, but it's just, it gets so weedy back there that it's like always a battle. And then I've got my chickens in the backyard. Um, and so that is a new adventure I'm on and I love those. So that kind of takes you on a little tour of, um, of the property here. And so a lot of times I think I like to think of my space as, like I say, pursuing that magic that I saw in those properties when I was in my early twenties. Um, but also just letting it be like almost like a learning lab for me. Like it's a little bit of a space of experimentation. And I think if for people that are more interested in a more static kind of aesthetically motivated notion of the landscape, they're, they're probably like, what this person designs landscapes for a living, Ugh, you know, because I do let it be pretty wild and experimental on purpose because that's how I learn. <laughs> um, it makes total sense. Well, it's cool to hear because it sounds like um, you were inspired by by these people to create something magical, and I I was inspired by you to really kind of expand my own approach. I I started growing vegetables in in North Carolina, probably about you know I guess we're about an hour and a half apart, so mm-hmm. similar overall region. And yeah. I was growing vegetables, but then seeing you share the fruit berries you were growing, the trees, it just really inspired me to kind of think how much more you can do, and so it's cool to hear how these different people do it and it inspires others. And, you know, now we have some neighbors who've come over and like, Oh, this is so cool. You're doing this. And they start to do it. So it's sort of this just yeah. this ripple that spreads. Have you seen that where, you know, once someone starts doing it, that, that others want in on the fun. I mean, I've definitely seen it, especially with the way that I have been inspired. And so sometimes it's like hard to see how you, how, you know, how you inspire mm-hmm. other people, but um, certainly that's, I guess just trying to follow my inspiration is like what I'm always trying to do. And I mean, the reality is that, I mean, I, I don't necessarily look at urbanized landscapes and suburban land as um, like all gone and like just yeah. ugh, it's terrible and toxic, but more, I just like, I like to see opportunity everywhere. Like there's mm-hmm. so much opportunity on all these, on all these parcels and um, it is just so exciting to imagine more people realizing that actually you can, it doesn't have to look like all these other ones. Like you actually really can fill it up with life and you can fill it up with your favorite fruits. Um, yeah. I didn't mention plums or my absolute favorite Methley plums, um, which do really well in North Carolina. And I have probably six of them. So oh, amazing. Of my hair. Yeah. You know, I, I too am a huge believer in just um, the potential of the suburbs, you know, with, with people to take some some yard and grass that they're mowing every single week and just transform it to something more more full of life, more beautiful. What would you, like, how would you recommend people, you know, they're listening to this, they're like, oh, this sounds interesting, but wow, that <laughs> sounds like a lot of work or wow, that sounds like, you know, it's a huge, huge leap. What are the, what are some of the best ways for people to get started? Well, it, I... I think it's a kind of a hard question to answer because I do, I really do think it comes back to um, the individual person and like what is magical for them, you know? So like, Hmm. 
like I said, I kind of love chaos and I love um, just almost like fullness of life, you know? Um, And Mm -hmm. so when I stepped foot on that property in Greensboro and I just saw that it was like teeming with fruit everywhere, I was like, yes, this is for me. And I, and I do happen to love fruit. But like part of the reason that I love fruit trees is that my mom always took me blueberry picking and strawberry picking and like it, it was like a value that was shared with me as a kid. So I do think that there's something about it like makes me feel close to my mom who I love um, when I'm growing fruit on my own property. And that just may not be the same for everybody. I also like right. really love to have bird guard, like plants that specifically I know birds love. And it's like my dad is the one that shared with me his love of backyard birding and like kind of got me interested in birds. And now my son is a really serious birder. So for me, it's, that's like, it's like almost an act of love to, to grow those plants. And so I, I think it's like, you have to start with where, what you love, right? Like you have to figure out or just be open to, maybe a grandparent made a pie for you and like they didn't even, they weren't even a gardener, but like you love that fruit that was in that pie or, you know, an herb that was grown when you traveled somewhere that was really special to you. And like, now you want to start growing that herb, you know, and you're going to start with that or something. So I do feel like you have to start with what you love and to be able to discern that you have to slow down (laughs) a little bit Mm. and like, be like allow yourself to be open to what might delight you. And I do think that that's a really, that I say that that might sound a little esoteric, but I really do think that this has to be a labor of love to be able to do it well. And it's not just something that you see in a book and you're going to copy it, but it's like, what is the, the loving entry point for you? And then you kind of follow that. That's how you're really going to be successful with something. And I mean, I just feel like too many people are often people are very caught up in, you know, and over like overworked, overstressed, like over. And then it's like, I don't want one more thing to have to do. And if that's the attitude, like it's never, it's just not going to work. So I really do think it has to be like, so the entry point could be, you know, paying attention to what plants, um, spark joy for <laughs> like, you know, like what yeah. you love, but also, um, slowing down, like yeah. giving yourself the space to just be outside and, you know, on your land or nearby land and, um, breathing, <laughs> you know, just giving yourself space to kind of feel that connection. That's so interesting. Cause I think with permaculture, they talk a lot about, observing your land and, you know, paying attention to that and and taking time for that. But I haven't heard somebody articulate that beautifully about how important it is to pay attention to yourself as well. And I think the, the example would be like, people are always like, what vegetables should I grow? And it's like, well, what vegetables do you like to eat? Totally. (laughs) Yeah. Because it's, um, it's, it's just like, if you grow something, like I know people who grow tomatoes and they don't even like tomatoes and sure you can give them to your neighbors, but that's a lot of work for something that you're not gonna, not gonna even enjoy yourself. Um, I I've heard you say that when you start to work with, with land that you like to bring uh, a, a perspective of wonder and curiosity. And I thought that was really a, a cool way of describing it. Could you tell us about that? 
Yeah. And I'm so glad you asked that question because that's the one thing I feel like I didn't say in the last part was like, cause it was so much about like, what is the person that you're talking to love, right? Like, what do they like to eat? What, what's their entry point? But, and that's like the big thing about how permaculture is practiced a lot. Like, yes, the principle is to slow down and observe. And if you look at all the permaculture principles, they're the principles themselves are fantastic because they're really about the process. But too often, just like you were saying, permaculture gets expressed as like, oh, is like as like particular technologies or particular practices like, oh, you have to do the, you know, this type of guild with these plants or that's permaculture or you have to, you know, build this structure, make it look you know, a really big one is like, it has to look kind of like messy, like a permaculture garden might look like it has to have like all these certain characteristics that like you've seen somewhere else. But I really think so in addition to like finding your own entry point, and like what you love, there's also knowing that that ecosystem, that ecology, and that's the idea of kind of like opening yourself up to kind of the wonder of what is like, you know, again, I think you can't, you can't get in touch with all the inherent beauty of like that particular place. It's the only place like that in the entire earth. And you're not going to see it if like, you're trying to follow a prescription that you read in a book somewhere or like some guru that told you that like, it has to be this way. Like it really, really, really has to be about like allowing yourself to slow down and experience the wonder of that particular place. Um, so often it's like, we don't notice, it's kind of like, I was saying that my back is a ravine, but it's like so strange. Like I can talk with neighbors and this is, it's not to pick on any particular neighbors, but like, it's, it's like, like that, the fact that that's a sloping land, like people don't even make the connection that like, well, it slopes because like water carved that valley, Mm. (laughs) you know? And so there's water down that hill. And water moves down the hill. And that's just like, oh, I never thought about, are you sure? Like that happened, you know, and it's like, yeah. And you know that because you can like watch the land and you can know that that happens, but you have to open yourself up to like having like curiosity and like wonder about that individual place to actually be able to see that. Yeah. When we, when we moved in, there was a part of the grass that the grass wasn't growing well. It was right up against the fence. I was like, oh, cool. I'll dig up the grass and I'll plant some sunflowers and some blueberries. And then like three weeks later, we had this crazy rain and it all came through and basically washed everything I planted oh, out. Yeah. And the reason was the reason that the grass was all like it was, was because that was where the water had been traveling. And if I had just slowed down and observed, I would have you know put that together if I had kind of a bit more experience. So that was a really powerful lesson. I, I'm curious because one of the themes I've been exploring across these conversations is this idea of non-doing. And when mm-hmm. I hear you describe your work and I, I read your stuff, it feels like you're embracing that in some of the approach. Is that a concept that you're familiar with? And is that true? Yes, I'm definitely familiar with that concept and it is definitely true. And I love you're making that connection. So I don't feel like I often make that connection explicitly. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like people actually spend a lot of money and energy doing things just because you want to be able to call it done. That's Mm. very, very typical of our culture of just kind of like ramrodding over things, you know, places just to kind of like be able to say it's to be able to do it, like get it done. Um, But yeah, I'm pretty adamant that the the very first step is that, that non-doing and the being able to just be um, 
And so the more that you can just be on the, on your own land, then it's almost like the next steps can start to emerge out of that space as opposed to them being something that you have to force and letting something just emerge is actually a lot easier. Um, I mean, it, it results in like, it's, it's a lot easier. It's just like an easier process. It's more joyful. Um, and it, and it results in a better place to be in the long run too. So like, that's a great example, but you know, maybe you wouldn't have noticed that if you hadn't made that mistake too. Like there's also some, sure. there's like an element of, of it all that involves like also being okay with like, oh, that's like laughing at yourself and being like, I made that mistake. And now I know that and I'll look for that next time. Yeah, I, I, that's, that's such a great way of thinking about it. I love the way you describe your property as a, a living laboratory. It's, uh, I think that's also a testament for people who are renting as well, because I think a lot of people who are renting are thinking mm-hmm. about how, you know, why would I invest time in this property? I'm not going to be here. Um, and I had a conversation with David Holmgren recently, and he said the way to think of that is that you will gain more from their the land than you will give it in terms of what you learn and, and all that. And I thought that was just such a beautiful, beautiful way of, of describing Well, of course, that. a very wise statement from a very wise person. Um, but I, I really believe that because you, again, it's almost like, it's like thinking about what's, what's it going to do for me? Or like, if I'm going to put that effort in, like, what am I going to get out of it? But it's like, you will get something out of it just by the act of, kind of learning and being curious and, and giving. And also you can't really anticipate the ways in which like wisdom that you pick up in that, in that rental situation, like doing something like that you might be able to use 20 years down the line, but you also might kind of start something that could benefit somebody else in the future too. The other part about the, the non-doing that I think is funny too, is that it it's happening whether you want it to or not in terms of, things unfolding and emerging. And I think you, you mentioned the example with the fruit trees and the shade and this process is happening, whether we, so we can try to control it, we can try to force it and we'll mm-hmm. lose, or we can sort of learn to, to ride it and, and to, um, to just kind of work with that. And I, when I learned the permaculture idea of secession and the way they use that as a principle, mm-hmm. that was really powerful for me because it, it sort of explains how you can kind of use that to your benefit rather than to kind of your, your frustration. Could you describe that to people and and talk about (laughs) how you think about that in your work? Yeah. So the idea of succession is that idea. And they, they talk about this a lot in the context of thinking about um, food forests and permaculture, but we also use it in, um, you know, thinking about ecological restoration um, and ecologists look at it when they're kind of evaluating an existing forest structure um, so the idea with succession is that, you know, there's, there's primary forest. And then if, if a area is clear cut, or if, you know, you have a large, you know, large trees come down, then there's like an opening in that forest, right? It's, and then new pioneer species are going to come in, those new pioneers are faster growing, they're going to grow up really fast and kind of, you know, colonize that land quickly. And, um, because there's a lot of sunlight there. And so it'll be like those kinds of species. And then like over time, it becomes more shady again, just like what happened in this little tiny spot in my front yard, it becomes more shady again. And then that changes the dynamic of like, what is going to be able to grow there. And so um, it's like, 
the idea then of succession, like using succession in as a design idea is that you're embracing the idea that the land is, that it's not just like a painting, but that the land mm. is going to change over time. And so um, you then, it's almost more like you're allowing there to be a space for that to happen, like for new things to emerge and for that like succession to happen, as opposed to trying to micromanage what exactly will happen. But I'll say that I see a lot of designers, both permaculturists and like more of the landscape architecture side of my field, who are are wise thinkers about the idea about the idea of succession. And this this goes for me as well, in the sense that um, it like I still find myself wanting to micromanage how the how that unfolds. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> I still find myself wanting to be like anticipating okay, well, I know that this is what's going to happen over time. Like a really simple way is like you put in plants and you're like, it's going to grow this big over time. And so you kind of give it enough spacing so that like, you know, that it's going to grow that way over time. And that's the way that you can try to like, or there's many ways to try to like micromanage that like, this is what it'll be like three years. This will be what it's like five years. That's I even kind of said that in my one example of a project that I'm working on right now. But it takes a lot of experience to have to like pull back and have the humility to realize that actually you're not sure how that's going to be in five years. <laughs> so like it's, that's not an easy thing, but non-doing is like not yeah. a very easy thing to do. And there's still a lot of like trying to, even if you embrace it, there's a, it's a dynamic landscape and it's changing over time. It's not super easy to be okay with that. Or <laughs> it's not super right. easy to just like, truly allow that to happen. Um, it's one of those examples where the more you learn, the more experience you have, the more you realize what you don't know. And exactly. And it, it, it takes that. Uh, as we're <laughs> talking exactly about this, that. I mean, yeah. the, you know, I, I got to plug my favorite idea. This, so the, the theme of self-renewal, it's sort of, you know, what the, the current name of the podcast is. The reason that captivates me so much is because I think I struggled with a lot of these ideas that you're describing around how change is constant and, you know, what can we be doing in response? And this idea of self-renewal, it's about creating conditions so that you're building in the capacity within the entity, in this case, you know, maybe a garden, maybe a landscape, maybe an ecosystem. So it has the capacity to evolve as that change happens and trying to, you know, invest effort up front, but then sort of acknowledging that you're taking a step back and letting it happen. How do you think about that in your work? Well, I mean, I do think it comes back to, I guess, <clears throat> I don't let's see if this is getting a little bit philosophical, but oh, we can get as philosophical <laughs> as we I, I just think that, um, I don't know. I think in my work, I think a lot about culture change. Like I think mm-hmm. a lot about how like, I can work. I can talk about, you know, somebody finding what they love in their landscape and us working together to, to grow what they love or to, to build that, that sense of connection in their own land. But like I'm saying, to really be able to embrace the ecology of that land and to really embrace the changing, the inherent changing nature of landscape really means embracing the idea, the acceptance. I mean, the acceptance of death, for example, like the acceptance Mm. that like you may have been really attached to these, these plants being here, but what's going on with the soil and the surrounding 
trees or whatever means that those plants just don't do well here. You know, like you have to be, you have to accept that, um, like you're saying, change. You have to accept death and change and decay and growth, like growth where you don't want it. A big thing in the South is that people have to accept weeds. <laughs> they have what they call weeds, you know, like we have to mm-hmm. accept that things are going to grow where you don't want them to grow. And we all, we like, as a culture think that we can dominate land and dominate everything, you know, like that we can just decide that we're going to do this. And if, if my will says that this is what's going to happen and I throw enough money at it, then by golly, like that's how it's going to be. And, um, I think to do, to do, to develop your landscape and to like really grow and allow change to happen on your land and grow and like to have you actually grow with the, what's the growth on your landscape. It's like, you do have to embrace all that change and you have to embrace, um, non-doing and you like all these things that we were just talking about for the last 10 minutes. Yeah. And that's not what's mainstream in our culture. So the bigger picture for me is that like, I, I guess I really think about my work, not as just um, like, Oh, I'm specifying some plants for people, but that like, I'm, I almost like to use the landscape as a tool for people to kind of grow in like, a lot of different ways. And I feel like the landscape is like a metaphor for that. And, um, and then I'd like to think that collectively, like if we can, can be doing this as part of a movement of people who are trying to think about their urban and suburban landscapes differently, you know, trying to think about growing their own food more, um, thinking about like, you know, their, their local food supply, like differently, um, and kind of all these, if we can string all these together, then that starts to become a little bit more of a movement or that becomes a little bit more of like, there's energy around that. And like the idea that, um, we can learn non-doing on the land rather than domination, like feels like that there there's connections in like lots of different spheres. So totally resonates the I, I think about all the time how much I've changed from having started to garden over the last few years and the way that that has changed yeah. my perspective my day-to-day life you know so I hear so that many all the time yeah yeah it it's really it's really remarkable and I think it's a testament it sounds like you're not just helping people grow plants you're helping them grow themselves and that's contributing to the to the life in the landscape because we're a part of that I, I'm curious when you, you know one one of the phrases you've I've heard you use that really excites me is this term regenerative mindset. And so (laughs) I'd love to hear you describe that. It feels related to this. And I'd I'd, I'd love to hear you talk a bit about that. Um, yeah. So I think that, I mean, in some ways we've just kind of cataloged a lot of what goes into the regenerative mindset, but we haven't used the term regenerative yet. Um, Mm -hmm. and so, but, but I've thrown around, you know, terms like ecology or ecosystems, so, um, my, my undergrad training actually was in environmental sciences and, um, my favorite classes were ecology classes. And so I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty serious about the extent to which I feel like ecological science and the, the idea of ecology is, it's actually an area that 
is relatively new in the sciences. And I think that ecology is already having a really huge impact on how we're thinking about all things in all spheres. Um, And it's, it's essentially, I mean, in a really simple way, this idea of circularity and that in any given ecosystem, there's, there's, like everything has like a connection to other, to everything else. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, like a elementary way of thinking about it is just like the web of how, how different organisms consume different organisms. And then, you know, there's larger organisms that consume smaller organisms. And then when they, you know, animals die, then they are, um, you know, they break down and then there's, bacteria and other organisms in the soil that, that like help that decay, that the decomposition process. And then from there, new life springs forth, you know, like that's where like in that decaying matter that's alive again, like soil, for example, like forest floor um, soil is alive. And like, it's like a space where life can, can grow from. Um, That's kind of what that, that cycle, that circularity that's just like one way of thinking about that circularity. Another way is like, we can think about, um, you know, the carbon cycle, we can think about the water cycle and like looking at how um, different matter kind of changes form and cycles like through a given ecosystem. Right. And in some ways, like it's all, like all of those different cycles I'm talking about are all interrelated and they all relate to like that, particular like the the features of that particular place so like in the mountains it that process happens a little bit differently than it happens in the Piedmont which happens a little bit differently than how it happens in the coast it's kind of in some places there's really stark like it's very stark <clears throat> like where you're in one ecosystem and like in and then not in the next you know like there's some sort of something in the landscape you know could be like mountains and like the rain shed like the kind of how a region or an area is kind of related to that landform, but usually the boundaries are a little bit like looser. That circularity or that like idea of ecology, like that's how I think about the idea of regeneration. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I kind of like pull all of that like ecological thinking into this idea of regeneration yeah. that like, cause I'm using it usually in a landscape. Right. So like, right. how can I create that regeneration in the landscape? Like I acknowledge that there, and it kind of comes back to this idea of succession. I acknowledge that, Mm-hmm. This is what's going to happen seasonally. Like this is what's going to happen over time. Like just this idea that like new life springs forth, it flourishes and then it decays. And then there's other elements in that landscape that kind of feed on or use that decay to like bring forth new life. And so it's this like self-perpetuating cycle of regeneration. Yeah. Um, and so that is the same with how, we can think like you started this by saying like, I don't like to think it's not like I'm just growing plants or like a landscape, Mm. but also like helping people kind of grow themselves in a way. And so that same very physical, it's not even really a metaphor, like that same physical process happens physically with people, but also metaphorically, spiritually, symbolically, um, that idea of regeneration. And so, but what I notice about like and why I use the term regenerative mindset is that like so many environmental types or like environmentalists 
never even mind people that don't care about that stuff. But like a lot of times we get caught up in, and kind of like I was saying about the prescriptions that can sometimes happen in permaculture. It's just like, well, if we just put solar panels on the roof, now I'm environmentally friendly. Mm. Well, solar power can be a renewable, like there's renewable aspects of solar power. I mean, it's called a renewable um, energy, but, but like also there are like waste inherent in it. Right. So are we, is it regenerative? Maybe like to a certain, I mean, depends how you look at it, but it's not just this like end all or like, Oh, if we just use this technology or if we just have this policy, then now that's our magic bolt. That's our, like, that's the thing we're advocating for. And it, it just feels again, like that same kind of like domination mindset of just, like we're going to figure out this, the answer and like now we're going to apply that answer and like now everything will be blissful. And mm-hmm. I just don't think, I mean, I guess maybe I'm kind of saying that on like the, in like the same way with regeneration, but I guess I feel like it's like, it's more like we need to totally shift from thinking that we're going to have some sort of ma- magic bullet solution and like ha- move into this mindset of slowing down, observing, letting, letting what will happen on the land like emerge and like stop trying to dominate it so much right so um i guess all of that goes into the idea of regenerative mindset yeah i I love that because i think that sometimes people you know they'll recycle and they're saying well i recycle so you know i don't need to do anything else it's like well if you you know use less stuff in the first place or um you know the people will start get so passionate about the straws and they'll miss all the other places in their life that they, they could and i think you know, what's been so cool for me to see is myself and others, once you start gardening, doing some of this stuff, it's a bit of a slippery slope where you begin to notice all these other things happening. Exactly. You start to see the world in a different way. And so I'm curious if you have any thoughts, like for people who are moving so fast, who are disconnected from the ecology around them, what do you think they miss about nature or about kind of this regenerative mindset or this way of living? I mean, what's amazing to me, and it's hard to do it. It's hard when you, when you feel like you're so caught up in everything. And I know so many people that are probably, if people are probably listening, I know, I'm sure you know what I'm thinking about. Just that idea of like, you get so caught up in the busy, like so caught up in the, like, this is what I'm doing right now. I can't even like stop to think just because that's so prevalent in our culture that I know that people know what that is. You like, I feel like it's easy to almost like roll your eyes at the, at the prescription to just like, or the the idea of to just like slow down, you know, Mm. it's like, (laughs) like almost like whatever, like that's like the world's like, even again, like people that are kind of in the environmentally concerned camp, you know, it's like the world's dying. I don't have time to slow down, but like the Mm. irony is that like that slowing down, like is what has to happen for the world not to be dying. You know, like we, Mm. we have to, we, like what you're missing is that like, there's so much, I mean, coming back to the like self renewal that happens yeah. from like breathing fresh air and having the sunshine on your face. Yeah. Um, and like having that connection with like non-human life, like around you that, um, so I think, so it's like, what do they miss? I'm saying that in kind of two ways. Like they're missing that, like actually the whole key to everything is that you like to slow down and like tap into like Mm. all the other relationships that are out there. But then also like, if you can do that, that it is this, it, 
it's almost like a, I, I like feel like this is circular too. It, it's almost like you can keep cycling like deeper and deeper into the ways that it, it can provide you with self-renewal, like with this, yes. because like the more that you do that slowing down, like the more it feels good. <laughs> and the more that you realize that maybe some of the stuff that you're so busy with, like, isn't actually that important. And like, and it's not to, and that like, it's, it's all this frenzy that like us humans are just kind of like making up. And like, if we can just kind of like slow down and like tap into like what's real and embodied and hear that, like, there's so much that they're missing, you know, but that it like could be so wonderful for them. You're speaking my language. I, I love this. What do you think happens to people's senses when they slow down and they spend more time outside? Have you read Joanna Macy? You should no. check out Joanna Macy. She's a um, major. I mean, she 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 talks about all this, like this idea of um, of the sensory of the sense making. Mm. So I'm so I'm p- totally pulling from her ideas because um, she's just a icon in all of this regenerative thinking um world but like she talks about how like when we are so frenzied and we're living in this like human constructed world of busyness that well she starts with the premise that we are sense making creatures and like that's what's so amazing like one thing that's really really amazing about humans is that we can like that we that we the like how refined our sensory systems really are and that like there's so much that humans can sense sense. And I mean, you could, you can look at people that are really gifted in this and really start to blow your mind on like the potential ability to sense um, in, in your environment. But um, like track, when you think about like tracking, for example, or um, things like that. But uh, so she, what she says is like when we're in this world of busyness and we're letting all of the um, kind of like that frenzy take over. And also when we're experiencing a lot of times we do that, we like tend toward that busyness because of anxiety, like an underlying anxiety or an underlying grief about like how much is lost. Like, so her, premise is that there's so much that we somewhere in there know that we're losing by living like this, but like, it's almost so immense to start to deal with all of that, that we like just distract ourselves with all the busyness. But then what's sad about all that, or what's so hard about all that is that all of that distraction and busyness prevents us from sense making from, from being able to sense in the environment. And I can certainly speak to that like really well. I mean, I had a time not in the last couple of years, but before that, but kind of pre pandemic where I feel like I was just like firing on all cylinders and just like a chicken with my head cut off, you know, like trying to just keep up with everything and thinking that that's how I had to live. And it dulled my senses, like it dulled my ability Mm. to just um, be able to see what was right in front of me and hear what was all around me and um, feel, you know, it like dulls your ability to, to feel. Um, And so anyway, I I think, I think that that's what I think, but your question seems like it came from um, 
Hold on, Joanna Macy's ideas. Yeah, I've read a bit of David Abram, which he talks a little bit, a little bit about it. One of the reasons I wanted to have these conversations is to connect dots between different domains. And we Absolutely. talked a little bit earlier with non-doing. When you're describing it, it's bringing up, I just recently have an episode with Johnny Miller, and he focused a lot on internal experience, interoception, breathing, and that same loop where you train yourself to enhance your sensory awareness of that, which then provides more. And it's just to create this loop. I think you're describing the same idea, but with your external world. And I think I've become so fascinated by that. Yes, absolutely. And I'm familiar with Johnny Miller's work and um, um, I dabble in all of that as well. So there's, there's also probably a reason I make those connections for sure. That, yeah. But, um, but you know, my realm is the physical world for sure. Um, I think I do. I think my realm is so much the physical world because I am really in the, in the clouds. Like I'm rather Mm. dreamy kind of out there airy person. And I think I really do need the, like I, I realized early that I need the physical world for grounding. Like I'm not a natural, I'm not like naturally grounded in that way. I like, I, I reach to the landscape for that ground. It's interesting how there's certain things that seem to be pretty universally grounding for people though. Go outside and sit in your backyard and that will, that will, you know, ground most people, you know, do some physical activity, do a workout, bring yourself into your body and that will ground most people. I think, you know, as I've explored breathwork with Johnny, like it seems like breathwork (laughs) can really ground most people. So it's just interesting to see how they're, those are some common threads. I, I know we're Absolutely. coming up a bit on time. I'd love to just jump into one last topic with you. If, if only selfishly, you know, I have a, a five, a five month old now and, you know, <laughs> I, I know you have a, a few kids of your own and I'm, I'm curious. I think a lot of people think of their children and how much the chaos of parenting contributes to the busyness of life as you, you know, balance mm-hmm. work and, and, and parenting and, and all of it. How have you, how have you approached that, you know, bringing kids into your world with, with the stuff you do at home and, and there? And, and do you have any thoughts for how people can integrate that <laughs> while also slowing down, given that, you know, at least in my experience, it, it sometimes feels like it makes things accelerate? Yeah, it totally does. I mean, this is a tough one because I think no one, no one wants to, like, we're all doing our best. <laughs> you know, raising kids is hard. And everybody's doing their best. And so um, in no way do I ever want to presume that I know what could be better for somebody or anything. Mm-hmm. But I will say that like a few things. I mean, our family, so I'll start out with the practical and then I'll like go a little bit more into some of the other things we were talking about. But in relation to, to kids and parenting, um, just like at the most basic level, if you give a kid a seed, <laughs> they really love to plant seeds and stack. And like, that's why every kindergarten classroom like grows a sunflower seed or a bean seed mm. in the window, because it's just fun for kids to see this tiny little seed and then watch it grow and change. And in some ways it's almost like so basic to, to like, to growing up is to do that like simple exercise. And yeah. so Um, like on the most basic level, I think it's really important for kids to be able to see life grow and for them to participate in like that idea that like they can have us, they can play a small part in like growing life, um, and like knowing what is required to grow life. And so like just, and like seeds are really cool because seeds are so, there's so many different, um, sizes and shapes and like it's, 
it's really amazing that like this tiny little, you know, carrot seed like grows into this carrot really quickly. I mentioned the carrot cause it's like a small seed that grows really quickly, you know? Yeah, um, I'm not a child, but it still blows my mind. It's like, you it's put like this little mind thing blowing. It, yeah. It's wild. And I see it in my own kids, like the little ones. Cause I have four when they're littler, like just like, <gasps> just being so open to the mm. wonder of it all. And then like the 10 year olds being kind of like, yeah, yeah. I've been there, done that. Like I know, you know, like they get cynical, like because yeah. they they're learning to be cynical in the world. But I like continue. There was a guy named um, Joseph Campbell who uh, I really recommend him actually for parents. He, he had some books um, called sharing nature with children and like maybe sharing mm. nature with children too. I'm not sure about that second one, but. Um, and he, I mean, it's more for environmental educators and like when I have worked as an environmental educator, that's like where my work with, or my reading of Joseph Cornell has come in, but I have used it so often in my parenting because it's like that encouraging of like continuing to inspire wonder and curiosity in your kids, even when they're learning from our culture to be cynical. And so even the, you know, the older ones, I'm like, come plant these seeds. Like this is magical, you know, and like still try to make it like it's magical. And then, you know, not everybody loves to hike, but like, I do think that my kids have really benefited from like the relentless hiking that we do. Like I get Mm. them out in the woods a lot and I hear a lot of people being like, oh, but my kid doesn't like to walk. And it's like, guess what? Like neither did mine. Like Mm. they didn't really have a choice. And I've noticed that the more that you, even on a day that they're like whining and complaining, if they're whining and complaining about that they're tired of walking, that's our indication that we need to keep walking on that day because mm. we need to push past that, yeah. like that resistance. Like we, we actually need to like keep walking until they've like moved over it and like into some sort of other mind space. And so like, I really believe in that idea. So like, that's one thing I would say for people with like little kids who are like, Oh, they don't like to hike. And it's like, yeah, I know <laughs> they get hot and tired and you can keep that you can keep going and like they're going to be okay and like so i feel like those are two like baseline activities that my kids have grown up around and of course i'm like bringing them along on job sites or like i do a lot of garden volunteering you know the kids school or different kinds of community garden spaces and like they're they have to come along a lot and they don't like always love it but they just like accept that it's they accept that there was like a chicken in our bathroom this morning because we had a sick chicken and like they just um I think just because you have kids doesn't mean you can't keep doing that stuff and like just right um like letting them see it and be a part of it um but then like more philosophically you know I we we're constantly wrestling with how do we kind of keep our kids like help our kids stay like open with wonderment and curiosity mm-hmm. to the natural world and like feeling like we're fighting against like the modern system, you know, system and like everything that they're learning, you know, out in the world sure. and like wanting them to not also not wanting to totally shelter them. Like we're constantly wrestling with like what's the right amount. But I think we keep coming back to, um, the more that we can kind of like be present and like make sure that they have the space to breathe and like space to kind of just feel like they like know who they are, that they're not just like being like flown around constantly. Um, And we've had to make a lot of really big, I guess 
like I would say, like we've made like really, really big life decisions based around making sure that, that we maintain that for the kids. Um, yeah. What, what comes up for me is just the, the way you're describing how important it is, the environment that you create for them, the, the way that you model all of this stuff. And, you know, we're, we're super early days in it. Um, <laughs> but it's fascinating to me to you just see the natural curiosity and wonder that, that a young child has. And so I feel like, you know, similar to learning from the garden, I'm also learning from her and, you know, trying to, trying to create space to just encourage and not stifle that. And I think like yeah. you're describing so much, so much of the world and, and fortunately does stifle a lot of that. Yeah. Well, and a, a great, like if, you know, you have a baby, like there's something called the rye method. Um, there was a woman named Magda Gerber who, um, this is kind of like metaphorical for all the stuff we're talking about. Um, and like her philosophy, it's like definitely babies, like babies and toddlers, like her whole philosophy. And there's, there's some childcare centers that I'm sure where you live, there's some childcare centers that employ this philosophy. The philosophy is that like modern, especially American parents, although she I think was Hungarian, was not American, but like that mm. there's this tendency to inter intervene like as soon as, I mean, forget even like phones and electronic toys, like just put that aside for a moment. But even like a kid, a baby like looks in a direction and like a, a parent wants to come in and like swoop in and be like, oh, that's, that's called this. That's mm. like the, like put all of this like determinism on like that child's experience, like so young, like let's name this that thing. And like, we're kind of encouraged to do it because like, that's how you like build their brain or that's how you um, kind of like teach them lots of stuff is like, you start naming everything and you start um, kind of like, you want to get over there to do that. Like, let's, let's, let's walk as fat. Like, let's get you walking so that you can get over there to do it. Or let's, let's name it for you. Or let me put this in front of you. Let's put all this stimulation in front of you. And what she says is that it's interfering with a baby's natural learning process. And that this is another thing that's magical. Like if you can just like allow a baby to like, to struggle, like in the sense that like, they're still trying to figure out how to flip over, for example, or they're totally. trying to reach that thing that they see over there, but they can't quite reach it. Like let them have their own experience of just trying, you know, or let them have their own experience of what that, plant is that they're looking at or that shape that they're looking at without having to like give it a name and like removing some of that wonder and curiosity from them. And just, and so it's, it's really this like force yourself to hands off, almost like sit on your hands and just like let the baby just experience. Yeah, that's And great. it's really an interesting, I feel like that's a really interesting metaphor for like what we all like if let's just think if we were all parented in that way where like we were kind of like just given the space to have some frustration or given the space to kind of have our own experience of like the things that are around us that we might just be a little bit more comfortable with slowing down but like since that isn't typically like how we do things necessarily I feel like then we're raising a whole culture of people who like don't know how to just be. <laughs> totally. Yeah. We're, we're not creating like the um, resilience and, and the empowerment for people to do it. I, the, the example you gave around like rolling over it, 
uh, it's so relevant to some stuff that I've explored, you know, in the physical activity exercise world, I went to this course DNS on how babies move. And the biggest lesson is like, we, I don't know how to teach my child to roll over to what I can't teach that. I bet you don't know how to teach that. Like, we don't know how to, like, we don't know how to teach a kid to roll right, to stand up, to walk. Like we don't actually do that. They know how to do that on their own. It's innate. Just like, like, I don't know how to turn a seed into a tomato plant. I just plant it, put some water, maybe a little bit of fertilizer, compost. Like you're creating conditions for this thing to happen, but you're not actually intervening and do it. And so I love that you use that example. I think it's a a perfect metaphor for this entire conversation, the connection between, you know, the work we do in our gardens, the, the, the parenting we do. Um, just to kind of wrap up and, and, and finish off, you know, is there anything that you'd encourage people who've become interested in all of this stuff? You know, I think your message <laughs> earlier of like, look inside yourself to find, um, to find a path forward is a beautiful one. Is there anything else you'd encourage people to, or point people towards to, to just get started with, with some of these ideas? I would come back to, the simplicity of just giving yourself the space to be outside and, and like breathing and feeling the sunlight on your face and kind of just noticing what's out there. I feel like that really is a big place for me to start. You know, there are bird species that are out wherever you are. Like it doesn't matter where you are. There are butterflies. There are, um, you know, there are, wildflowers growing through the cracks of the sidewalk in New York city and anywhere else. Like there are things that grow on the side of the highway, you know, just like slowing down and like noticing what they are, noticing where the water flows, you know, noticing where the sun shines and where it's shady and just kind of like opening your eyes to like all the wonder that's in the world. I feel like is the, is, I know it sounds kind of like, okay, no, I wanted something real, but like that is, I think, the very best place to start. And then I do think it can be a fun exercise to to kind of come back to that question that we talked about toward the beginning of our conversation, which is like, what do you love? Like to just do a little discernment of like, is is there some like tell almost like let stories just like bubble into your head. Like there was this person, when I was a child, there was this person who I loved who like made this meal with me. Or there was, like I said before, like there's a a flavor that you like from some place or there's, um, I mean, honestly, for me, like I, I've had some really great experiences in the tropics. Like I've had um, like studying abroad and, and like some other travel, um, spent little time in various Central and South American places. And, um, there's something about like that kind of like abundance of the landscape there. And like that, I think always informs the way that I think about like wanting to achieve abundance in the landscape, you know, like, but for me, that's my entry point, you know, and it's because like there were experiences I had in these places that I really loved. And I want to like kind of bring a little bit of that into my life. So it's that discernment process of like listening to your, inner voice about like what you might love, like what plants you might love. Even if you think you don't love plants or you can't grow plants, you know, like what, what foods do you love, you know, and like make a little pot and like grow that one thing. And you can email me 
And I can tell you how to grow that one thing, because even if it is something tropical, you can grow it inside or, you know, like, no, it doesn't matter what it is. And like, just start with that, like start with the thing that you love and see what that process is like. That's amazing. I think that's a, a beautiful place for us to, to end. You, you heard it here from Kristen, step outside, <laughs> s- smell the air, see the sun, um, look around, look within and, and just, just start listening to, to what calls out to you. Um, I'll link to all of the information with your, your email so people can reach out and sure. um, point them towards your work. I think you share, you share some amazing inspiration, some wonderful how-to guides. I'm always, I have, I, I joke that I have a, a thread of things I want to do and like 50% of them are stuff that you've shared, whether it's <laughs> rain barrels or, you know, the backyard chicken. So um, you've been a huge inspiration for me and it's a real treat to to dig into these ideas with you. Um, anything, final words that you want to share? I'm just so grateful to have this conversation. Um, it was fun and it's always fun to talk to somebody who, um, you know, it, with whom our, what we're ta- our ideas resonate. And so I'm just really feeling grateful for the time. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Kristen as much as I did. I know there are a lot of ideas that I'll be implementing in my own life and my own garden. Please subscribe to stay tuned for future episodes. And don't hesitate to reach out if you have ideas for people to talk to, topics to cover, or any other feedback. My Twitter is in the show notes and my DMs are open. Thanks so much.